Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 11, Caesar's Homecoming. Last episode, over the course of eight years, Julius Caesar forged himself a powerful and loyal army as they ravaged Gaul and defeated every tribe that opposed them. Gaul was brought under Roman control by the brilliance and brutality of Julius Caesar, and the Roman people loved him for it. His great conquest put his prestige and wealth on par with Pompey Magnus who had conquered the East. While Caesar's life was going gangbusters, chaos reigned in Rome itself, with electoral bribery rampant and violence escalating. To bring order to Rome in an unprecedented step, Pompey would be made sole consul for a year and had complete power over the city. While Caesar and Pompey held some reins on power, their fellow triumvir Crassus was killed in his ill-fated campaign against the Parthians, and Caesar's daughter Julia, married to Pompey, died in childbirth. The bonds that held Caesar and Pompey's alliance were weakened. Still, the two continued to work together for their mutual benefit. As it so happened, in 49 BCE, as Caesar's operations in Gaul were winding down, he had a favor to call in. I am once again asking for your support. Our essential question this episode is, was a new civil war inevitable? Caesar wanted to be consul in 48 BCE, and with his popularity, he was a shoo-in. The problem was, he needed to be elected while staying outside the city of Rome, which was not allowed. Let's back this up. Magistrates, aka people in positions of power like governors, consuls, praetors, etc., could not be prosecuted by their enemies for actions they may have taken or crimes they may have committed. As Caesar was currently a governor, he couldn't be prosecuted by his enemies. However, if Caesar entered Rome to stand for the consulship, as per tradition, he automatically lost his governorship, command, and authority, and his enemies could prosecute him for his radical actions as consul and as a corrupt governor making unnecessary war for personal glory. However, if he could remain a governor outside Rome and still be elected by the people without entering the city, he would re-enter Rome a consul, immune from any legal prosecution, and after a year, could become a governor again, free from any prosecution, and out for fresh conquests. It would be perfect. I, I see this as an absolute win. In fact, to help secure this for himself, in 52 BCE, Caesar managed to get the 10 tribunes that year to allow him to do exactly that. The tribunes voted that when Caesar's command was nearing its end, he could still be voted consul as an active general, an exception to the rules, but one the tribunes granted. However, there were quite a few senators who had a bone to pick with Caesar and would try to obstruct his plan. The plot begins to thicken. For starters, Cato the Younger, who preached traditional values, stood opposed to Caesar. Along with Cato, several senators like Marcus Claudius Marcellus, Domitius Ahenobarbus, Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus, Apius Claudius, and Metellus Scipio, all for one reason or another, wanted to see Caesar torn down to size and had some means and influence to do so. These were the modern optimates, whose faction began as a conservative, established, aristocratic group forged against radicals like the Gracchi, who drew power from the people and the popular will. Now, these modern optimates were against the radical Caesar. 
All Roman aristocrats were driven by a want of accomplishment, distinguishment, prestige, and actoritas. They competed to be the greatest and most celebrated politician of their day. This was the mindset that fueled the Republic's expansion as great generals conquered new lands every generation and was the same mindset that was currently poisoning the Republic as politicians found more violent ways to tear down their enemies. Men like Pompey and Caesar were dwarfing the accomplishments of their generation, scheming and gaming the system to their advantage with Crassus. Together, they were the first triumvirate and sought to use and maintain their great power, wealth, influence, and prestige for as long as possible through their shared resources. The Optimates, long overshadowed by Caesar, finally had an opportunity to strike back. Caesar's command and legal immunity would soon expire, and the Optimates could damage his prestige as he became vulnerable to legal scrutiny for his radical and possibly illegal actions. While traditionally, Roman courts didn't successfully punish aristocrats who committed illegal actions like Caesar, you'll recall Caesar himself never successfully prosecuted any aristocrat, if the Optimates could pick the jury, they would pick men to hurt Caesar. Caesar's own father-in-law, Calpurnius Piso, was punished and kicked out of his governorship for his illegal actions. From 50 BCE to 49 BCE, there were legal debates as to when Caesar's command would expire. Caesar would argue that he should maintain command for as long as possible, using ambiguities in his original five-year command and then his five-year extension from Pompey and Crassus to ensure the longest legal command possible of his 10 legion army and legal immunity. At the same time, his agents in Rome argued that he should be able to stand for the consulship outside Rome, maintain his command, and immediately enter Rome as a consul free from prosecution once he won his election in a landslide. Of course, Caesar's opposition argued the opposite. They argued that Caesar's command should expire as soon as possible, taking the ambiguity of his five-year command and its five-year extension to find the shortest possible window of his command so that he would have to give up legal authority of his army as soon as possible. Let's try to specify this legal ambiguity really quick. The reason that Caesar's five-year command and five-year extension of command was so ambiguous was because he was originally due five years to command his Gallic provinces starting in 58 BCE. Then, in 56 BCE, Crassus and Pompey got Caesar another five-year extension of command. Therefore, Caesar argued that he should have legal command for ten years. As soon as his whole first five years expired, then the next five years would kick in, and he could have command and immunity for as long as possible. As you can imagine, Caesar's enemies used that ambiguity to their advantage as well. In their arguments, Caesar had his original five-year command, and then Pompey and Crassus gave him another five years in 56 BCE. But they were arguing as soon as Pompey and Crassus got him those extra five years, those five years started kicking in. So even though Caesar hadn't done his first five years yet, as soon as he got that second five-year command, that is when that started counting, and whatever time was left in the original five-year command did not roll over. The Optimates wanted Caesar out of power as soon as possible, and the quickest way to do it was to interpret that his command should be as short as possible. And in fact, he should be getting back to Rome immediately. Marcellus, a consul when Caesar defeated Vercingetorix, argued that Caesar should now give up his governorship and army since there was no longer a military threat in Gaul. All the Optimates balk suggestions that Caesar could stand for the consulship outside Rome. 
The Optimates were steadfast that if Caesar wanted to be consul, he must enter Rome to be elected. By entering Rome, he became a civilian and lost his command, making him vulnerable to sweet, sweet prosecution. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yes, excellent! <laughs> 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 the Optimates were so strong against Caesar that despite the previous legal passage by the ten tribunes Caesar arranged, he would need the support of another famous Roman and his ally, Pompey Magnus. As you may have been wondering, where was Pompey during all this time? Pompey was doing what he had always done, trying to remain top dog. Pompey was just as accomplished as Caesar at carving out vast wealth and prestige for himself and was just as motivated as any other red-blooded Roman to be the greatest and most influential Roman of his age. When he was 23, he illegally raised legions out of his own pocket to support Sulla and helped bring Rome under Sulla's dictatorship. Pompey, for the most part, only continued to succeed in life, serving the Republic across the Roman world by subjugating its enemies. To further his interests, he joined his former rival Crassus and the up-and-coming Caesar in a secret triumvirate, vowing to help each other out to get all they wanted. Pompey benefited from this great relationship. In his career, he boasted victories on each continent of Europe, Africa, and Asia, and had celebrated three great triumphs for these victories, and more recently, had become consul for the third time in his life. This most recent time, he was a lone consul, entrusted with the power to restore order to an increasingly anarchic Rome. He was called Pompey Magnus for a reason. Now, Pompey was in a fluid and unique position. While his popularity had wavered throughout the years, right now he seemed in a strong position, but that could quickly change. While the death of his wife and Caesar's daughter Julia was surely a blow to him, he was now a bachelor, free to make an alliance via marriage with someone new. He denied Caesar's immediate proposal that he should marry another of his family members and instead, very tellingly, married the daughter of the optimate, Metellus Scipio. Additionally, that same year, Caesar was granted his exception for the consulship by all ten tribunes. This was later overturned by the sole consul Pompey. While Pompey still maintained his alliance with Caesar, it was apparent they were drifting apart. If Caesar wanted to be elected consul outside of Rome, Pompey made it apparent Caesar would have to appeal to him. Furthermore, after his consulship, Pompey was made the governor of the Spanish provinces with legal command of an army, but he delegated the task of running the provinces to subordinate legates while he remained just outside the city of Rome, closely watching the situation develop. Just like Caesar, he couldn't enter the city without giving up his command. The Optimates had to appeal to Pompey. If Caesar was stupid enough to pull a Sola and march on Rome, Pompey was the only one with a legal army nearby that could defend from Caesar's hypothetical invasion. Pompey also had to consider Caesar's popularity. As previously mentioned, Caesar's Gallic conquests made him as famous and admired as Pompey's Eastern conquests. The public was enthralled by Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars, works by Caesar describing his grand conquests, even landing on the mysterious island of Britain. Caesar had 55 days of public thanksgiving feasts, celebrated in Rome in his honor for his great accomplishments. Unchallenged for decades, Pompey now had a legitimate rival in the debate of being Rome's greatest living general. Unique to Pompey, compared to other politicians like Caesar, Cato, Crassus, and Cicero, Pompey Magnus was relatively incompetent. 
Pompey had fame and fortune, yet never fully utilized them to achieve his own political ambitions. A genius commander? Certainly. A politician who could charm and influence others to achieve his desire? Rarely. Pompey was only able to confirm the legitimacy of his eastern conquests and secure land for those veterans with the triumvirate and alliance with Caesar and Crassus. Pompey alone wasn't enough. And so, Rome was left in an increasingly stressful position. The great and celebrated Caesar, who controlled 10 legions, wanted to maintain his power for as long as possible and be elected to the consulship outside Rome. His opponents like Cato and the Optimates argued he must face justice as soon as possible and that they might then get a chance to earn fame and fortune in their own right. And then there was Pompey who was not bright in Roman politics, yet still held enough influence to sway things one way or another. He remained generally neutral, yet was definitely straying from Caesar, unsure of which outcome would be best for him. Early on, as Optimates pushed him to support a quick deadline for Caesar's command to expire, Pompey refused to weigh in. If he openly supported Caesar, their combined influence could accomplish Caesar's goals, and if Caesar kept succeeding, Pompey may soon find himself below Caesar on the ladder of greatest Romans of all time. If he supported Cato and the Optimates, Caesar couldn't get what he wanted. Of course, if Caesar was disposed of, Cato and the Optimates may turn on Pompey, jealous of his influence and power as well. Would the politically inept Pompey be able to save himself from them, or would he too be torn down like Caesar? Perhaps that marriage to Metellus Scipio's daughter would bring him closer and safer into that circle. But if anyone could screw up that advantage, it would be Pompey. And of course, the biggest question on everyone's mind, if Caesar couldn't get what he wanted legally, would he try, I don't know, not legal means? Say, turn his successful 10 legion army on Rome? Rome was going on decades of bloodshed committed by politicians, tearing down their rivals. From final acts? Civil wars between Sola and Marius, to the deathless that were Sola's prescriptions? To recent politicians and gang leaders, like Claudius and Milo, leaving bodies on the streets only to be quelled by Pompey. Politicians didn't lean into civil war, common people certainly didn't want civil war, but to avoid that, either Caesar or the Optimates would have to back down. Oh, it's really warming up now, isn't it? So, 50 to 49 BCE was a year of tense legal debates and increasing tensions. Caesar and the Optimates used their levers of power to prove their point. In Rome, Caesar had men like Mark Antony and Quintus Cassius Longinus as tribunes with veto power defending Caesar's interests. However, the Optimates were also stacked in political positions. Metellus Scipio wanted to make a vote that Caesar must give up his command on an assigned day, but Antony and Quintus Cassius were able to veto this. Negotiations continued. Caesar, who governed three provinces and controlled ten legions, offered to give up governorship of two provinces and just keep two legions under his command, assuaging the Senate's fear that he might invade Italy, as Pompey also had legal command of two legions. Cicero jumped in on these negotiations. While he leaned toward the optimate perspective of traditional Republican values, he wanted to avoid civil war. In communications, Caesar put more on the negotiating table, asking for command of just one legion so long as he could stand for a second consulship outside Rome, 
The idealist Cato and the other optimates refused to accept this. Caesar should have no legions and should be a civilian in Rome. Caesar refused this and negotiations broke down. This is bad. This is very, Stephen very a. bad. About a month before these negotiations broke down, there was a Senate meeting in which three votes were taken. One vote was to see who thought Caesar should resign his command and legions. A large majority agreed with this. A second vote was taken to see who thought Pompey should give up his command and legions. A large majority disagreed with this. But the final vote was to see who thought that both Caesar and Pompey should resign simultaneously. This vote received the largest majority of all. The meeting was dismissed and no action was taken. Clearly, many senators wanted Caesar out of power, but more so, this demonstrates the greatest majority of senators wanted peace and de-escalation, that both Pompey and Caesar shouldn't have command to wage war against each other. Throughout the escalation of tensions, Pompey was distancing himself from support of Caesar and moved closer to the Optimates. The famously passionate Mark Antony, who had served under Caesar in Gaul, verbally attacked Pompey in Senate debates, criticizing his career and even threatening violence. It was a bad look for the Caesar brand to have his man spewing threats on the Senate floor and certainly didn't endear Pompey to help his former father-in-law. In his own home outside the city, Pompey summoned the Senate, reassuring them that he would fight for them if it came to war with Caesar. Pompey was also ever confident that he was still Rome's greatest living general. Calpurnius Piso, Caesar's father-in-law, offered to go to Caesar to negotiate and de-escalate. This was supported by some, but the Optimates had confidence to pass the final act. The measure used by the OG Optimates to legally kill Gaius Gracchus that allowed the deaths of Saturninus and Glossia by Marius, and the same measure used by Cicero to execute the Catiline conspirators. The Senate called all officers near Rome to come home to defend it from a grave threat, Gaius Julius Caesar. Whatever you did, you've been officially labeled a disturber of the peace. This called Pompey Magnus to raise forces to defend the Republic from Julius Caesar should he try to invade Italy. The act couldn't be vetoed by tribunes Antony or Quintus Cassius, who were advised to flee from the city. While they were sacrosanct, and it would be a religious offense to harm them, No touching! They were warned by a consul that he could not guarantee their safety. They fled north for Caesar. To the Optimates, Julius Caesar was a radical politician who upset the natural balance of power with shady alliances with Crassus and Pompey, who abused his power as consul and further abused his power as a governor. So what if Caesar conquered Gaul for Rome? That was land that they and other senators should have had a right to win, not for Caesar alone to dominate as he had for the past eight years, and increase his power by having a few allies and a few agents in Rome. Caesar should not get this chance to become consul again, regardless of any promises previously made. He would not go unpunished for his illegal actions, and he would pay the price for them. And then, in a Rome without Caesar, they and the Republic could prosper once again without a radical politician upsetting the natural order. Oh, it's beautiful. To Caesar, it was clear his enemies were determined to make war on him and tear him down. While he was born into an aristocratic family, he worked to get where he had gotten. He spent his youth dodging Sola's hunters when he was on the arrest list, and came to Rome and carved out a career for himself. 
Welcome back. He had put himself in massive debt to do so, but he always bet that he would succeed in the end and continue to rise through the ranks of Roman politics. I made a crazy risk to gamble. And when he saw the opportunity to achieve what he wanted with Pompey and Crassus, he forged the triumvirate and for a time had near mastery of Roman politics. And then in Gaul, just as hundreds of governors before him, he made war. He expanded the Republic's borders. He finally made himself a rich man, made his men richer too, and dazzled the Republic with his conquests. It's about to pay off. These optimists were just as thirsty for wealth and fame as he was. The only difference was that they didn't grab it by the throat like Caesar did. And now they wanted to take that away from him. But you can't do this to me. You know how much I sacrificed? How can you do this? This is outrageous. It's unfair. It was likely on the 10th of January, 49 BCE, that Caesar and a single legion set south. Then on the 11th, they looked upon the Rubicon River. It marked the border between Caesar's territory and Italy, where he held legal command and where he was a rebel against the Republic. Various ancient historians give slightly different accounts of what happened next, one of which was that Caesar paused and summoned his officers. Asinius Pollio was one such officer who later wrote Caesar knew if he didn't take this step, it would cost him, but if he did take this step, the Roman world would suffer. Caesar's loyal army anxiously waited for their commander's ultimate decision. Caesar could leave command, comply, and return to Rome in peace, where he would be torn down by his enemies. Or Caesar could not leave his command and point them south. Caesar said, You know what? I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving! Actually, it's somewhat up to interpretation of what Caesar actually said. However, our most common and cool phrase is this. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, the die is cast. With that single legion, just a tenth of his forces, Caesar invaded Italy. These legionaries were loyal to their general, who for eight years fought with them, looked after them, and made them richer than they had ever been before. They were willing to fight Caesar's enemies, even if they were fellow Romans. Caesar was betting his single legion, with a quick invasion of Italy, would drive the opposition out, giving him time to prepare for the greater war to come. A great guide for me this episode, and has consistently been throughout the series, is Adrian Goldsworthy's book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus. I drew a lot from his chapter, Road to the Rubicon, and I want to end here with a lengthy quote from him that very well summarizes the fluidity of this situation. Caesar chose to fight because as far as he was concerned, all the alternatives were worse. The Republic had become dominated by a faction who ignored the normal rule of law and particularly refused to acknowledge the traditional powers and rights of the Tribunate. Yet Caesar was quite open that it was first and foremost because this faction of men had attacked him now that he had moved against them. 
The Roman world was being plunged into chaos and bloodshed because one man was as determined to protect his dignity, his reputation, his prestige, as others were to destroy it. Over the preceding 18 months, the stakes had been raised in turn by both sides. Attitudes had tended to harden, suspicions had grown, and trust declined too far to give compromise a real chance. The civil war that began in January 49 BCE could not have happened without the bitter, almost obsessive hatred felt towards Caesar by men like Cato, Domitius Ahenobarbus, and others who made them determined to prevent his return to public life as consul. Even this would not have mattered if Pompey had not seen an opportunity to demonstrate his supremacy and show these men, as well as Caesar, that they needed to placate him. Finally, the struggle would not have begun had Caesar not placed such a high value on his prestige and position. His life to this point had demonstrated his willingness to take risks if there was a chance for a valuable prize. For Caesar, the valuable prize was holding on to everything he built for himself, and maybe, just maybe, a Rome without his enemies. Caesar bet on Caesar and attacked Rome. This is me. This is how I win. Our essential question this episode was, was a new civil war inevitable? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to think of your response. This one is kind of a toss-up for me, and I can see a variety of answers. My personal answer is yes and no. Perhaps Caesar, Pompey, and the Optimates could have negotiated a compromise that left them all happy. Remember, the majority of senators voted that both Caesar and Pompey should lose their governorships and armies, and the situation could have de-escalated, but there was no action taken on this. And remember too, Caesar negotiated down to having just one legion, a tenth of his strength, if he could stand for the consulship outside Rome. But the idealist Cato the Younger refused to budge. There were solutions on the table out of the civil war, but Caesar, Pompey, and the Optimates could never agree on a compromise. We were on the verge of greatness. We were this close. But even if they were able to compromise, it's important to remember, the Republic was built on a broken foundation that Caesar and Pompey had been exploiting badly. If it wasn't Caesar's return from Gaul that set off a new civil war, something else probably would have set it off down the road. War has been averted. Mm. Well, I disagree. Perhaps so. You see, hidden within the unconscious is an insatiable desire for conflict. War on an industrial scale is inevitable. They'll do it themselves within a few years. All I have to do is wait. Next episode, we look at the Civil War. One side led by Caesar, the other led by Pompey. It was a war of respect and ego, and thousands of Romans would die because the leaders of the Republic couldn't find a compromise. This episode, a very special shout-out, goes to Adrian Goldsworthy. For one, a lot of my information comes from him, but for this episode, describing the minute and precise motivations and details of these historical figures, rather than broader descriptions of events, made it difficult to write. That long, beautiful quote from Caesar, Life of a Colossus, was a great end cap to this episode, and I don't know how I could have navigated all these competing interests in a compact way without his work. This series is about broad strokes, and there's a lot of cool details that got cut out. 
If you're interested in this stuff and would like to learn further, I encourage you to read Goldsworthy's books on Caesar, as well as Antony and Cleopatra, and Augustus, all of which have really helped me throughout the series. I know, in a sense, this episode might be one you could skip if you already know what happens, because Caesar casting his die is a pretty famous event in Western history. Originally, I wanted to get to the conclusion of the Civil War by this episode, but I felt like it was important to address the individual motivations of the historical figures in this escalation as we try to understand them today, and Adrian Goldsworthy spent a lot more time doing that than me. So thank you very much, Mr. Goldsworthy. I draw a lot of information from you, so much so I'm afraid of accidentally plagiarizing you, but your work on Augustus helped inspire me to do this in the first place. Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube. Death of the Roman Republic's YouTube channel will contain episode highlights, re-listen to favorite clips, and share with friends, and help them discover the show. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. If you would like to follow the show on Twitter for some Roman history memes and additional educational materials, you can follow at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter. I'd love to see you there and join the fun community we got going at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter. Check it out. Or don't. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Actually, it's somewhat up to interpretation of what Caesar actually said. However, our most common and cool phrase is this. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, There's a good chance I may have committed some light treason. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, We made it. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, Now is not the time for fear. That comes later. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, Get what you deserve! When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, It's just good business. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, Check this out. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, This is where the fun begins. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, You underestimate my power. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy, and officially declared war on Rome, he said, <laughs> Yes, it's me. 
and you guys are angry about it. Oh my God, I make y'all feel that. <laughs> well, this will not take long. Well, I just wanted to pop up here and show y'all how I'm doing. I'm doing great. I'm looking great. I'm feeling great, you know? <laughs> wow. But anyway, um, I just want to let y'all know I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so I just want to say hey. <laughs> and that I'm here to stay. And you're going to be mad every day. <laughs> Success. When Caesar crossed the Rubicon River into Italy and officially declared war on Rome, he said, Go, dice roll!